Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. I want to thank you for allowing me to be gone a couple weeks. And one or two of you have made the mistake of saying, how was your vacation? So I want to tell you all we weren't on vacation. Mary Lee was certainly not on vacation. That's a plane, right? Because uh, Mary Lee sat in uh, the motel room embroidering and listening to books on tape all day, every day. And that's not a vacation. Well, I worked writing. So even though we were gone, we worked very, very hard. And you'll find out that we did take one day off at the very end, the last day. And we went uh, snorkeling, which was fun. Would you stand for our scripture today? It's Psalm 5. But anyhow, thank you for letting me do that. I do trust that you'll continue to benefit from my writing. I think it's helpful, but what do I know? Why don't you laugh? This is Psalm 5. We're studying through the Psalms. This is the fifth one. And this is the word of God, and it's eternally true. For the choir director, for flute accompaniment, a Psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Heed the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning, I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. But as for me, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will bow in reverence for you. O Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. There is nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Hold them guilty, O God, by their own devices. Let them fall. In the multitude of their transgressions, thrust them out, for they are rebellious against you. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. And may you shelter them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. You surround him with favor as with a shield. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I'm going back and working on a book that, is, uh, that I've worked on a number of times down in Mexico now on the church. David told me when I started it not to write what I was intending to write, so now I'm going back and trying to make the corrections David tried to get me to make years ago. Yeah, yeah, you. Yeah, you. You said don't write on choosing a church. It's a stupid, a hooped thing. And uh, so now I have to redo it because I didn't listen to you. And that's hard work. One of the things that I think is so very, very important as I get older is that we as Christians learn that we are what we eat. And Satan is very sophisticated. And so Satan tries to entice us to pay attention to gluten and sugar, refined sugar, and white bleached flour. And it's absolutely ridiculous. Now, it's not ridiculous that Hannah, I don't know what it is currently, but But Hannah seems, and and also her little daughter, Mary Louise, so I'm aware we have stomachs. I have chronic acid reflux, right? Mike, you do too. Um, So yeah, 
food matters, but food's for the stomach and the stomach's for food. And do you realize I'm quoting scripture and that's the tone of voice it says it to us in. It's not like food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. That's the way we talk about gluten. You are what you eat. And many of you spend your lives consuming Facebook, World Magazine, NPR, and other stuff that I wish I could use a word that I'm avoiding. And this stuff will form your character. It will form the way you think. It will form your relationships with other people and it will absolutely suppress your ability to name God as your God. Now, why do I say that? Well, because what's happening is the world's food that it makes you eat, that it shoves down your mouth, is ubiquitous now. Now, what does ubiquitous mean? It means it's everywhere! You go into the bathroom and you take the world into the bathroom with you. You drive in a car. You know, when Jonathan Edwards was working through God's sovereignty, he would go out in a field. And there was no smartphone with him. And he would listen to the thunder and see the lightning, and he would have a picture of the glory of God. There is no glory of God in our lives because we're so petty, and the world just fills us, our time, our attention, everything, with what messages it wants to give us. And we're suckers, you know? We think it's imperative that we show how chic and awkward and, and like up-to-date and youthful we are. And thin. And like gluten-aware. Now, why am I saying this? Well, because you can't enter into the psalm that we're studying today if you eat the world. Because the world has you just where it wants you. And you will not have any of God's thoughts in you. Because the world, if if it gets you into Facebook for one second, you'll be counting likes. And what a miserable existence. You know, from the time I first saw that stupid thing, I have wished that there was a dislike button. Could you please give me a dislike button? Could I please show that I that I absolutely disapprove of that cloying sentiment that passes for a thought. Now, you want to know what a cloying sentiment is? Well, a cloying sentiment is if somebody comes up to you and, and they hug you. And they're big like me and fat. So they come up to you and they hug you, and then they put their mouth right next to your ear and cheek to cheek and rub your head and, and say, I'm going to kill you. And you can't fight it because they've gotten an arm and cheek to cheek and they're rubbing your head and you, you're like, okay. And that's what radio and the internet and Facebook and tweets are today. They're absolutely, completely destructive. Because you're sitting there salivating like Pavlov's dogs for a like. And does the world like God? Do Christians like God? No! Christians don't like Jesus. Can we say this? I loved it one Sunday. I got done preaching about Jesus saying that you have to hate your father and mother and brother and sister if you're going to follow him. And there was a Chinese woman who was coming here. You remember this, you know? And she came and she had a Chinese Bible and she was reading it. And that Sunday we went into the library and she looked at me and, and there were a couple other people in there. I never meet alone with women. 
which is important. And she said, you know, I, I like the Bible, and, and, and I like church, and I like Christianity, but I don't like Jesus. And you know, my heart just, it was like I, I was holding a newborn baby. I thought, finally, some honesty. She had faced the fact that she had to make a choice between God and man, and specifically her parents. And she got it. And she said, I don't like Jesus. And I thought, I wish all of us would admit it. Jesus is exclusive. God is exclusive. And every single fiber of our being in the postmodern world is opposed to exclusivity. You want to know what postmodernism is? You want to know what your culture is? It is opposition to God. And you think, well, yeah, I got that the last couple of weeks with the Supreme Court. And I say, no, 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 no. The Supreme Court is only who you put in office. You chose the Supreme Court. When you decided back in the 1960s that everybody was going to be brain dead and asleep on abortion, and you say, no, 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 that was 1973, vote Roe v. Wade. I say, no, no, no. Abortion had already shot through our country before Roe v. Wade was ever passed. And then when Roe v. Wade went through and all the Christians went, saw the land, guess there's nothing we can do about it. When in the course of human events, and all the Christians just said, yeah, let's have open season on the babies, and now we have 50 million of them on our bloodshed on our hands in this country. Billions of them around the And you look at me and you go, well, what happened? And what are we going to do? And the answer is, you are what you eat. You are what you eat. If you eat the stupid tweets from famous Christians, no wonder you can't think a godly thought in your brain. Because you think that that's religion. <laughs> you know, it's not religion. Hate to tell you, it may have the name God and it may talk about grace and it may, you know, but it, it inures you to true godliness. It makes you so you can't even recognize true godliness. You've, you've eaten so much habanero or so much horseradish that you don't have any ability of tasting a raspberry. So, so let me ask you a question. If, hypothetically, you accept the proposition that the people of God should have enemies, everybody on board with this, hypothetical, you know, just in principle, as long as you don't have to think about your life, just hypothetically, should Christians have enemies, Right? Well, I'm getting a mixed message here, and so maybe I have to actually, you know, bring, bring in a jackhammer and get at the foundation, because if you don't realize that your Lord and Master said that you must take up your cross and follow him, if you don't realize his entire life from beginning to end was the opposition of the world, and then they killed him, and that he says, take up your cross and follow him. If you don't realize you should have some enemies as a godly man and a godly woman, then we've got some basic problems here. Because what on earth is the cross that you've taken up? <laughs> Are you with me? And don't tell me it's your baby. <laughs> or your wife. So let's just hypothetically accept the fact that there should be enemies for Christians, for real Christians, right? Right? Now, let me ask you this. Who are the enemies the world tells you to be opposed to? Westboro Baptist. And anybody that causes that young boy in New York to be afraid because he's gay. Okay, you saw that this morning, Hillary Clinton. Big headline on Google Home News page. Hillary Clinton shows kindness to gay boy. 
How did she show kindness? She showed kindness by telling him he shouldn't be afraid because he's gay. God says he abominates gayness, not just gay action, but a denial of his sexual nature. God says he abominates that. God says that is an abomination before him when we refuse to confess who we are sexually. Okay? Doesn't mean it's easy. Is it easy for you to be married to that man? No, it's not easy. But if I were to all of a sudden start a support group in this church for women that hate their husbands, I mean, you know, do you think the elders would let me get away with it? It's not an identity. It's it's just part of marriage. Not for you two. You're just so sweet. And so the enemies that the world wants you to have are people what? They're people that leave their children in a car while they run into the store. They're people that throw a piece of cellophane out the window as they drive. People that don't wear seat belts. People that smoke cigarettes. Who? Meat eaters, yeah, that's, yeah, that's getting up there. Meat eaters, non-vegans. Yes, and corporations, make no mistake about it. Corporations. People who what? People who leave dogs in cars. People that don't, that don't put their dog on transfusion when its liver goes out. Large families, absolutely large families, yep. We all know what we're supposed to be opposed to and look at as enemies, right? We all know that. Now, who does God tell us that we are to have as our enemies? In the morning I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch, for you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. Now this is very clear, isn't it? So if you're a Christian man or a Christian woman, Your identity is so completely owned by God, completely owned by God, that you abominate what he abominates, and you love what he loves. And so you can't stand the wicked. You can't stand liars. You can't stand the proud. You can't stand the deceitful. And you can't stand people that have blood on their hands. Murders, right? Now, if I were to say to you, okay, which one of those do you do pretty well at? Everybody here would answer as long as you didn't, you knew I wasn't asking you, you know. Somebody else was asking. You didn't have to think carefully. You'd all say you're doing real well at the murderer one. You can't stand murderers, right? And so all murderers are your enemies, right? Because you identify with God. God hates the bloodshed of the innocents. And so everybody that's shed blood is just absolutely your enemy. And I say, okay, great. We got one to work with, okay? The rest of them, you know, you may have a soft spot for the arrogant. They're not really your enemies. They're your friends if you can borrow their tractor. And you might have a soft spot for for people that are sinners, but we're all sinners. Did I say that right? And then you come to the one about murders, and you say, yep, 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 yep. You know, I'm opposed to murderers, and, and murderers are my enemies. I say, okay, okay, good. You have real enemies. Now, we're not talking about, like, ISIS. We're not talking about, like, Hitler. I'm talking to you about your enemies, you, 
personal enemies, murderers you know who can't stand you because you disapprove of their bloodshed. And all of you go, well, I mean, you know, how many murderers do I really know? And I say, well, probably somewhere on the order of 50 to 100. And you say, what? I say, guarantee. I mean, I could point them out here in this sanctuary right now. You say, oh, come on, Pastor Bailey. You're always using hyperbole. I say, no. Do you know how many people in here have either paid or themselves have killed their unborn children? You go, <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, that. <laughs> oh. I go, yeah, that. Well, I mean, no. And I got you, didn't I? I got you. But I didn't get you. God got you. God hates bloodshed. He hates it. He abominates it. God says that every bit of blood in the soil testifies and cries out to him for him to redress it. Do you understand this? God sees the blood of the unborn. God sees the blood of the newborns who have been defective and starved to death. It's going on right now. In my inbox queue, I have a request from a woman to get an advocate for somebody in a major city of our country because the parents are starving the child to death. And then how many, how many people who are in nursing homes are having food and water withheld to kill them. They will not die by a disease or old age. They will die because of starvation and dehydration. And you say, oh, well, I mean, their lives, you know, I mean, you know. And God says, I'm the one that creates the eyes that see and the eyes that don't see, the ears that hear. I'm the one who creates old age and youth. I'm the one that makes a child defective, gives a child spina bifida. How dare you declare that life not worth living? And so I bring up abortion and euthanasia and infanticide with you, and you think I'm not playing fair. You know, you think, well, I mean, you know, I mean, it's an evil world we live in. And I say, okay, so... Are there any women who have killed their unborn children who hate you because you have witnessed to them against their murder of their unborn child? And you say, well, that's Tim. He just wants everybody to hate us. I say, okay, okay, let me ask it a different way. Are there any people that you know and love who adore you because you've called them away from killing their unborn children? You can't have that if you don't have this. You cannot serve both God and mammon. You cannot live in a demilitarized zone. Either you will be the stink, the stench of death to some, and the most precious perfume of life to others, or you will be a you know, chatty Kathy doll, you know, like, 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 tweet, 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 tweet. And when you die, people are going to stand up and say, he had 10,000 tweets. So now I'm coming back and I'm asking. Theoretically, hypothetically, we should have enemies. Right? Right? You all with me? Who are your enemies? And you say, well, the Supreme Court. I say, that doesn't count. The Supreme Court is just who you wanted to put in office and you were successful. So who are your enemies? Well, you know what Jesus said? Jesus said the enemies that you'll have will be what? The members of your own family. Why? Have you ever tried living with a godly wife? That is a real pain. Anybody ever tried? Come on, raise your hands up high. All right, now all of you who are always delighted with it, put your hand down. Now, I didn't give you permission to put your hand down yet. All of you that have godly wives, raise your hand high. Every man here should have his hand up, just lie. <laughs> Come on. 
All right, now all of you who always are delighted with your wife's godliness, put your hand down. Always delighted, Jody. Oh, I'm so glad. <laughs> okay, is, is there anybody here who has always been delighted with his wife's godliness? Oh, yeah, Charlie. Yeah, Ben. No, you're a liar. No, you haven't always been delighted with it. Yeah. You two are liars, but I... Yeah, yeah, you were vacillating. And Charlie is sitting next to Susie, so we understand. Now, why am I saying this stuff? Where does it come from in our text? Here's what I want you to look at. Look at verse 7. What is the word that verse 7 begins with? Huh? But. And but there is used in an adversative sense. An oppositional sense. It is the fulcrum on which the whole chapter pivots. But as for me. And so what David is doing is David is setting himself in opposition to whom? The wicked. He's setting himself in opposition to the proud, to sinners, to liars, to deceivers, to murderers. Now, if you look at the commentaries on this chapter, what you'll find is a ton of ink is spilled on the subject of when exactly in David's life was this psalm written? Because there's such conflict. And so all the commentators are, are looking for that precise moment. And so some of them say it was when David was running from Saul in the wilderness. And then others say that it must have been at the time when Absalom flipped on David and, and tried to usurp the kingdom. And those are the two main options, right? If David, if this psalm is messianic, if it's partly prophecy and partly present reality, okay, then let me ask you a question. If it's messianic, which particular conflict that Jesus had is this about? And of course, it's a joke. Why? Well, it's a joke because day one of the three-year ministry or day one and a half or day two or day two and a half, or day three. How about hour one, hour two, hour... In other words, at what point in Jesus' life was he blissfully clear of conflict? You know, like, for instance, when he isn't surrounded by the scribes and Pharisees who are plotting to kill him, and he just has the disciples. And he, it's so sweet because all of a sudden, Jesus gets so positive with his disciples. I mean, Elder Canfield is smirking. Why? Jesus is not positive with his disciples. Jesus is like my mother. She never, ever, ever said anything positive to me. Except she loved me, but. You know, even if she could bring herself to say I love you, there would always be a but there, an adversative. She was improving me until she died. And she wishes she were still here doing it. And so did my children. You didn't allow yourself to laugh that loud that time. It's my son-in-law. And so they, write, they look at this psalm and they see the wicked, and then they see David's righteousness, and they see David pleading with God, pleading with him to protect him, pleading with him to vindicate him, pleading with him to hear him. And then David even goes nonverbal. He resorts to groaning. 
This is so intense, David's back is against the wall, that there's some things he can't even express. He's just groaning to God. And then they say, well, that would have to be when either Saul was opposing him or that would have been when Absalom was chasing him out. Okay, really? Those are the only two times in David's life he had enemies? Saul and Absalom. Let me ask you this. When David wrote Psalm 51, do you think his uh, popularity rating with the women of Israel was, you know, 90%? Do you realize that women still today, even knowing that God has said that David is a man after his own heart, women still today hate David? (laughs) Did you know that? Everybody know that? All the men? I mean, women can't stand David. Why? Uh, well, uh, duh. Something about adultery and murder, and then the death of the baby. So, right after Bathsheba and Uriah and the death of the baby, what do you think? Could David have written this psalm? And you say, well, no. Because this psalm, David actually says this. He says, At your holy temple, I will bow in reverence. Lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight for... I mean, he's making claims of righteousness. He would never have written a psalm like this right after Bathsheba, right after Uriah, right after the death of the baby. You know, one of the things that's amazing about the book of Psalms is how constantly David claims righteousness. And you know David, and you say, how on earth can David claim righteousness? Well, if you look at the text, it's very interesting. So he goes through all the wicked, and then he comes to verse 7. He says, but as for me, what? By your loving kindness... I will enter your house. So how do we have the audacity to come into this place of worship and to sing Psalm 5 and to pray by God's loving kindness? So then let me ask you a question. How precious is the loving kindness of God to you that he will receive your prayers and worship? How precious is that to you? It's unbelievable because you know your heart. You haven't looked at Facebook. You don't notice your likes, and you don't read stupid tweets. You're in the Word, and you listen to your wife tell you what's wrong with you. And so when you come into church Sunday morning, you're perfectly tuned to see the holiness of God and that you only enter by his loving kindness. Now, that's true. It's true of every Christian. Every last Christian that's true of. And then he says this. At your temple I will bow in reverence for you, O Lord. Lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. You see his dependence on God. He's completely dependent on God. He's getting hit and shot and lynched. He's getting scorned and scoffed and mocked. He is as weak as weak can be. And he knows the only possibility of him coming into the house of God and worshiping God and praying, the only possibility is God's loving kindness. And then he pleads with God to make his path straight. Well, what's going on there? Well, he knows he's Christian (laughs) in the Pilgrim's Progress. You know, he knows every single time somebody comes up, sidles up next to him and says, well, have you read, you know, the nine marks tweets? They're just so life-affirming. And so he goes off into the nine marks thing, and then it's the Gospel Coalition, and then it's Tim Keller, and he just goes back and forth and back and forth in every slew of despond and every vanity fair. He just has his ears tuned to the world. 
And then he sees the holiness of God. And he prays. And what does he pray? He doesn't ask God to conform his will and his purpose according to David and David's sense of what is good and right and fair and evangelical and missional and all this other stuff. He says, what? He says, make your way straight before me. Keep me on the path. Keep me on the straight and narrow path. I can only come in because of your loving kindness. Now keep me on the straight and narrow paths. Keep me on the path. Keep me on the path. And then he confesses the truth about every other voice. Every single other voice. He says, what about them? He says, there is nothing reliable in what they say. Nothing. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Listen, if I were to... If I were to take one phrase, one phrase, and say what is characteristic of Western culture today, it would be that. They flatter with their tongue. I was listening, I feel like I already told you this, but I don't think I did. I was listening a couple of days ago to this radio program, Driving Down from Indy, and it was a radio program where these two dudes, talk show hosts, had some woman come on and, and plead with him to help her tell her son that he couldn't sing worth a darn. But that's not how they said it. She talked about the anguish she was in because her son, from the time he was little, had, had, had desired to sing. And so she took him to voice lessons, and she took him to choirs, and she, she spent her life running him around in a car and paying money for the coach and it went on and on, and she said, but now my son, he's in his late teenage years, and I just, now it's serious money. It's trips across the country. You know, he doesn't get any of the auditions. I'm still paying for the coach. I'm paying for the, the, the you know, the trips. I'm, <coughs> my life and my money are consumed by this young man, but he, he she doesn't quite have it in her to say, he can't sing, you know. And so she leaves this stinking in the middle of the room of our radio waves. And these two disc jockeys then, and you can feel that they're barely suppressed. They're just, they're just wishing that they could get their hands on this late teenage boy. They're just absolutely disgusted that nobody has told him he can't sing. And yet they, and so women come on and they say, well, you know, the whole purpose of being a mother is to encourage the passions of your children. And I mean, that was said five, six, seven, eight, nine times within 10 minutes. Well, what is a mother to do if she doesn't encourage the passions of her children? <laughs> you know, just went on and on and on and on. And, and everybody was talking about whose job it was to tell this boy, can't sing. What everybody thought was that the voice coach had that job. That's what they're being paid for. So then a voice coach came on, sort of trembling, a woman. And she said, well, and, and, and these guys were out for blood. They thought this was, the, this was the, the body surfer, you know, in the Outer Banks of North Carolina. They were going to just swallow her, you know. And so she comes on and she says, well, it's not the job of a voice. I don't think it's the job of a voice coach to tell you you can't sing. My job as a voice coach is to just make you better than before you came to me. Well. <laughs> but the voice coach had a solution. And her solution was, that really, it's the audition's job to tell you you can't sing. Been there, done that, didn't seem to help. And listen, it is the nature of wickedness to flatter. There are all kinds of you. We've had people in this church who thought they could sing. 
It was awful. It was absolutely awful. And when I went home and referred to what we had just heard as a screech owl, my wife was not pleased with me. And IU took lots of money and didn't kick the person out of the program. So apparently it wasn't IU's, and I'm telling you, I didn't tell her. <laughs> Ain't going to do that, you know. This world never stops flattering you. They tell you you're beautiful when you're ugly. They tell you you're smart when you're dumb. They tell you you're encouraging when you just really discourage them. And then they tell you because you're American, you're good. <laughs> and the very opposite is true. And so here you are. David talks about God hates deceit, God hates arrogance, God hates bloodshed, God hates these. But as for himself, the loving kindness of God, he enters into the house of God, lead him in the straight and narrow path, and then he's... And you can just feel David bouncing between Facebook and Twitter. You know, he says, God, you are this way. Then he says, <laughs> because of your loving kindness, I'm better. And then he says, their throats are, and their, their, their flatters and their... And here's David confessing the nature of God and confessing the nature of the world and trying to live in a way that honors God. And you can see his effort. You can see he's, break, he's broken out in a sweat. You can see he has no confidence in his ability to walk that straight and narrow path. But he keeps talking to himself. He doesn't play the tapes of NPR. He plays the tapes of God, which is the word of God. And here's how he ends. He says, hold them guilty, O God. And you remember how I said we're supposed to have enemies? Can you, can you possibly deny the fact that David personally is absolutely opposed to wickedness? Hold them guilty. And this is a prayer that all of us pray all the time, right? We're just always saying, hold them guilty, oh God, because we're all in. And so we gnash our teeth at wickedness. We're like righteous Lot. We're like Noah. We're preachers of righteousness saying, hold them guilty, God. Right? Every morning you get up like David, you go to God and say, hold them guilty, God. So let me ask you, what is your identity? Who are you? Who are you? Who, 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 who? Tell me, who are you? Are you a Christian? Christians say to God, hold them guilty, God. Why? Hillary Clinton's a very evil woman. Why? Because Hillary Clinton is telling a man that his soul will not be cast into hell if he gives himself to sodomy. Instead, she's telling him not to be afraid of being a, a man that desires other men. Hillary Clinton is unbelievably wicked. I mean, it's just an objective fact. Anybody who tells somebody who wants to commit sexual immorality that they shouldn't be afraid of it, are you with me? Come on, people. Get out of Facebook. You know, nobody's going to push a like on this one. That is a wicked person. Why is she wicked? She's wicked because she has absolutely no tenderness or love or kindness for that soul. Meanwhile, Google's news page tells you she's kind to do that. Now, either you see that with biblical eyes and you say, hold them guilty, God! because you love that young boy, 
Because you know what it is to fight your sin. You know how God forgave you from his loving kindness when you confessed your sexual sin. You want everybody to have the same forgiveness that God gave you through Jesus Christ. And that's love. That's tenderness. That's kindness. And the world will browbeat you and harangue you and just gnash their teeth at you telling you that's hate speech and that you should love people. And that is your love. Remember how I started? I said, if you try to live in the demilitarized zone in the middle, you're lukewarm and God will spit you out of his mouth. There is no DMZ. If you're hankering after Facebook likes, you don't know God. Because nobody ever gives a Facebook like to God. You say, well, that's not true. Some do. I say, yeah, Rita Cuffey, but she's dead. She was a godly woman in this congregation who's gone. And, and, And so is Nana now, too. Julie, I thought I saw her in a car yesterday. And I remembered that God took her home. And so here's how we end. They are rebellious against you, ten, but let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy, and may you shelter them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. You surround him with favor as with a shield. Do you love the name of God? You say, what name? And I say, holiness. You say, well, I'm working on that one. I say, truthfulness. And I'm working on that one. How about humility? I'm working on that one. How about his name, that he is a defender of the orphan and the widow in her distress? You say, well, I've taken some steps toward that one. The names of God are the traits of God. They're the character of God. Okay? Do you love the name of God? God, his name is that he hates the proud, that he resists the proud. Do you love the name of God? God does not want you to be religious. Religion is not going to get you anything. God wants you to love his name. God wants you to identify so closely with his name that you're dead to the world. You're completely dead to the world. You're dead to Facebook lights. You're dead to your husband's nasty moods. Now, I don't mean to say they won't affect you. But all of a sudden, you're single-minded because you've prayed and asked him to lead you on the straight and narrow path. And all of a sudden, you are what you eat. And when you're around, it's like having a compass that is absolutely rock-accurate pointing dead north. And everywhere you go, people sort of hate you and love you because you belong to God and you bring him into every conversation. Now, wouldn't that be sweet if you actually lived as a Christian and everywhere you went, people either held their nose or they began to lick your skin hoping they could get some of that perfume. You know, the scripture says we're either the smell of death or were a sweet perfume, depending on how God is dealing with the soul. And so people either love your smell or hate your smell, but there's nobody that's neutral, olfactorily. Okay? Wouldn't that be wonderful? If everywhere you went, people either said they loved your smell or hated your smell. And then you'd be what? (laughs) Come on. Then you'd be what? Helpful. You'd be helpful. Now, those of you who are new here, I say it like that 
so that you can't think that it's pride. I mean, if I were to say it, and then you'd be helpful. Well, that seems like maybe I could be proud about being helpful. But when you say, that'd be helpful, you get it? In other words, our highest aspiration is just sometimes to tell the truth about the character and names of God. And then when we stand before the judgment seat, there will be some who shake their fist at us, and those people will testify to God that we did what we were supposed to do. And there will be other people who would never have heard the gospel, never been called to repentance, if we had not spoken up, and they will testify. Both of them will equally testify to us being good and faithful servants. So this week, turn the noise off, please. Turn it off. Listen to God. And be salt and light. Be helpful. Okay? 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 And to do that, you have to listen to the band's songs. I don't know how I could preach if I did not have our musicians. And this is a song written by David for the choir director. So we're going to get a chance to sing this again. Now let's come to the Lord's table and let's pray before we come. Our Father, we thank you for David and the fact that he was sinful enough that all of us feel covered by his wickedness when we plead with you for your tender mercies. We pray, Father, that you will cause us to eat your word and to find it sweet and to stop eating the lies of the world. We pray that you will help us not to fear man, but to fear you. And we pray that this week we may see that we are the savor of life, the sweet smell of forgiveness, repentance and forgiveness and eternal life to some. And that it will be clear to us that others hate us, not because we're obnoxious, but because we have spoken of sin and righteousness and judgment, we pray in Jesus' name.